0: A timely topic today, COVID, the flu, and RSV. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Patrick Kale, infectious disease expert with Hartford HealthCare, including Wyndham Hospital. Dr. Cahill, good morning. So glad to have you on the air today because this is just such a timely topic to talk about today. And I think for starters, what can you tell us about this new sub-variant that's going around quickly in Connecticut,
1: the XBB 1.5? Yeah, XBB 1.5 is just the latest in a long line of uh, COVID variants that has shown the ability to kind of take over the the preceding variants. And the concern that we have is the fact that it may be a little bit more immune evasive, uh, meaning it can break through previous immunity as conferred by infections or vaccines. And it is, likely to be a little bit more transmissible. And based on both of those properties, it has really taken over as the predominant variant throughout the Northeast, at least, and, and in Connecticut.
0: Did it originate in the USA? I was reading something that says this has not
1: come from China. This is a USA production. It very well likely is. Um And we've been seeing the whole time that um, many of the variants have spawned in different areas of the world. But due to the ease of international travel, um, and certainly within the U.S., uh, cross-state travel, I mean, the variant spreads like wildfire, especially when they're as contagious as, as these are.
0: Are the symptoms
1: the same as other forms of COVID? The symptoms are, are generally the same. Um, it You know, what we're seeing in the hospital is that people are less critically ill for the most part than especially early on with the Delta-derived variants. Um, which is a good thing, uh, of course. But, yeah, still there are quite a few people sick, and the test positivity rate has been skyrocketing over the last month or so.
0: Is this a subvariant of Omicron? Is this all part of the same original Omicron
1: species? At the end of the day, it is a subvariant of Omicron, and there are many um, variants that have been described so far. But, yeah, this is just the, the more recent version of this concerning variant.
0: Now, in COVID in general, whether it's XBB1.5 or the other variants that are out there, how long after first exposure do symptoms usually appear?
1: Um, You know, it can be variable, but generally within 3 to 14 days, we see um, people become symptomatic. And typically, it's on the earlier end of that within about uh, 5 days or so from an exposure that people develop symptoms. And I realize some people
0: don't realize if or when they've been exposed. However, how long after exposure should you first do a test?
1: It really comes down to a couple of things. One is um, the degree of symptoms that you're having, and um, another would be your eligibility for uh, any sort of treatment. So based on that, we want people to be doing testing earlier on um, after they develop symptoms because especially the oral antiviral agents such as Paxlovid and Molnupiravir are uh, recommended to be given as early as possible during the course of disease. So, of course, for that, we need to identify the the condition on the early side. So if people are developing symptoms and they have a high risk for bad outcomes, um, meaning chronic medical issues, um, especially difficulty with their heart or lungs in the past, and those would be good reasons to get tested um, to see if they were eligible for any treatments.
0: You mentioned Paxlovid. Tell me more about that and also the possibility of a rebound case if you take Paxlovid.
1: So what's the upside and what's the downside? Um, so the upside is that it can be very effective in reducing the duration and severity of symptoms. Um, it's an oral medication that is taken for a five-day course, um, again, to be given within the first five days of symptoms for maximal efficacy. Um, There have been reports of rebound symptoms following stopping Paxlovid, and, you know, we've definitely seen that from time to time, um, but that is overall a low risk. And um, generally speaking, the benefits of Paxlovid outweigh that risk of potential rebound infection. Of course, If people do have the rebound symptoms, they are, again, considered to be symptomatic. Um, We would not retreat them with antiviral medications, but, but that is a small possibility.
0: And, of course, President Biden was one of those who took Paxlovid and then had a rebound case. He's one of many who has had that. You've used the word symptoms a lot. And what I hear, maybe more than any other symptom from people who have had whatever form of COVID, is the cough not just during the actual symptomatic time, but it just continues on well after they test negative. Just tell me why that is.
1: Um, This is just a highly inflammatory virus and tends to cause a lot of immune activation, especially within the respiratory tract, and that can lead to that persistent cough, which can continue for up to a couple weeks um, following infection.
0: I just talk about some other symptoms in general. What the more common symptoms are, just so that people can hear that and go, oh, this might be a symptom that I have a form of COVID. And then maybe some of the symptoms that are not talked about much, but they are still a sign that you have COVID.
1: Sure. I mean, it, unfortunately, COVID is difficult to distinguish from many of the other respiratory viruses that are circulating. Um, but people very commonly complain early on of some um, signs of congestion. Um, leading to uh, sore throat, generalized body aches and weakness, quite often along with fevers and some chills um, as they progress into that pneumonia stage. Um, people have really pretty broad range of symptoms that can include headaches, um, GI symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, um, diarrhea. although Those are probably less common um, with COVID <clears throat> compared to some of the other viruses out there. But certainly, um, they are very similar to some of what we would consider classic flu symptoms that have um, that people probably have been familiar with for many years.
0: So, how do you in the medical community discern between whether you have the flu or whether you have COVID if the symptoms are the same? Is that where a test comes in?
1: Right. Um, so, testing is great uh, these days for the most part. If we are using the PCR-based testing, um, we are commonly testing people for COVID, influenza, and RSE up front when they present with symptoms. Uh, and it's certainly important to distinguish between those three just because, um, especially in the early phase, influenza and COVID can be treated with antiviral medications. Unfortunately, RSV is not um, something that we treat directly.
0: I even heard from somebody that had COVID a while back who had a really bad case of pink eye in both eyes. And as I read online, that is a COVID symptom. Have you had people who've had pink eye when they've come to you for COVID?
1: That's certainly a possibility. Um, that's not something that would often present to the hospital level. Um, but certainly in the clinic setting, we can have people coming in with more mild symptoms like really mild sinusitis and things like pink eye, which you know we often see with many of the other viruses that are out there. Um, for context, when we do the full respiratory viral panel we are looking for one or more than one of 19 different respiratory viruses Um, and many of those can cause very similar symptoms like the pink eye and, and sinus issues along with the breathing difficulties.
0: Which brings me to when people should seek medical attention. Should everyone who perhaps does a test at home and tests positive notify their PCP and at what point should they go to like the ER?
1: Um, So, people should let their PCP know, especially if it's early on in the course of disease, and if they have any chronic medical issues, um, to see if they would be eligible for any of the treatments for COVID or flu. Um, In general, not everybody that tests positive or develops symptoms needs to present to a healthcare setting, just because that quite often is not going to lead to any direct treatment, and we're typically recommending symptomatic management. Um, for those folks that are less severely ill or especially that are identified after that five-day mark of symptoms.
0: Yeah, you mentioned symptomatic management. Would that mean things like a cough suppressant to contain the cough that COVID can bring on? Do you ever attack the actual cause of what's causing that as opposed to treating the symptom?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, We would offer an antiviral medication if it's within that that initial five-day period, um, and the antivirals that we can offer as an up op- uh, for people in the community would be things like taxilvid or molnupiravir for COVID.
0: Yesterday's DPH report said that Connecticut's positivity rate was 15.7 percent, and these numbers in the last week are as high as they've been since January or February of 2022. My question is your thoughts about these numbers they're giving out now that do not show results of most home tests. How reliable are the DPH numbers these days?
1: It's a good rough estimate, but like you mentioned, um, there are a lot of people that are taking home tests that are antigen-based and are not necessarily getting reported to the DPH, so that is probably an undercount. Um, And, you know, those are people that are typically symptomatic to the point that they're testing. So we're, may, we're probably missing a lot of the more mild cases as well. So, you know, of people that have some degree of respiratory tract symptoms, yes, uh, testing over 15% is very high, um, and that's indicating a substantial level of community transmission.
0: If you report a positive test to your PCP, not necessarily seeing the doctor, does that doctor then report it to DPH, or is that incumbent upon us to do?
1: Uh, So individuals in the community are not um, expected to or required to report their tests necessarily. Um, The testing that we're seeing that gets reported to the DPH are laboratory-confirmed PCR or nucleic acid amplification tests. What does COVID
0: mean for people who are pregnant or breastfeeding?
1: Um, All along, we've seen um, slightly increased risk for severe disease for pregnant individuals. Um, We're not necessarily seeing people at this point hospitalized um, due to COVID and pregnancy like we were early on. And how about the risk of
0: COVID to immunocompromised people? Those people obviously should take as much possible care as they can.
1: Certainly. Um, And along with, you know, this entire epidemic that we've been living through, unfortunately, um, those folks with problems with their immune system at baseline need to take some additional precautions due to the increased risk for bad outcomes like pneumonia and death. So everybody at this point I would recommend to be wearing masks when in close indoor spaces. Um, You're talking grocery stores, um, businesses, even things like banks. It's probably a good idea where you're in close enough contact that people are breathing on or near you.
0: Hospitalization, 715 at the last DPH report, and again, that's as high as it's been since January or February, too. How does this affect things like Wyndham and Backus Hospitals here in eastern Connecticut? Have you been at capacity or maybe overflowing in the last couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, just about every hospital has been at or very close to capacity. Um I was- Certainly in the East region of Connecticut as well, we've been very busy, and the respiratory viruses are definitely a big part of that. Dr. Kale, what's long COVID, and who gets
0: long COVID? What are the signs?
1: So long COVID can be a constellation of symptoms, and is it doesn't have a great, um, precise definition, and it's something that is actively being studied, but people can present with uh Symptoms that may include chronic fatigue, body aches, uh, breathing difficulties, chest pains, headaches, Um, and it's not very well predictable at this point as to who will get long COVID. And it can be seen after both mild and severe diseases um, in a broad range of people, including young, healthy individuals to get it or um, those elderly folks that would typically be at increased risk for bad outcomes.
0: If you get long COVID, are you stuck with it for life or will it eventually taper off and go away?
1: That's a great question. Um, You know, obviously at this point, we really only have three years of information. So we tend to think that people with long COVID are going to eventually recover their symptoms. Um, But that certainly remains to be seen if people could be stuck with that for for many years. Um, We tend to you know, from the cases that I've seen, people have gotten better from their initial long COVID, which can certainly last for months. And
0: we talked mostly COVID here, but I think we should spend some time on RSV, especially the parents want to know because of the kids. I, I guess the RSV has gotten a little bit less of a problem in the last couple of weeks. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, it looks like uh, across the country and um, in Connecticut specifically, the RSD numbers peak. Just around Thanksgiving time, and and that's actually been downtrending a little bit as far as the positive tests, but it's still a pretty substantial, pretty substantial community transmission risk at this point.
0: And monkeypox is a thing for a month or two. Is that yesterday's news now?
1: Monkeypox is under reasonably well, under reasonably good control at this point. Um, I think you know the U.S. got a good supply of the vaccine available and we did a very good job of rolling out the vaccine to at-risk populations. So that's not a very high risk of people picking up in routine community settings at
0: this point. So the biggest concern seems right now to be COVID in general and the XBB 1.5 subvariant in particular. As we wrap things up this morning, doctor, just any message you have for our listening audience about what they can
1: do, what they should do to protect themselves from COVID? People should certainly be getting their COVID vaccines up to date. Um, Even though it may not confer as good a protection as we want, it's very likely to lead to a less severe disease. Um, I would highly recommend getting the influenza shots as well because this year, specifically, the vaccine to currently circulating strain match is actually pretty good and that's a good way of reducing your risk of getting flu or getting severe disease related to flu. Um masking and hand hygiene continues to be recommended in um, especially indoor settings where people are in close contact with others that they may not necessarily be um, seeing on a day-to-day basis.
0: Dr. Kale, really good timely information. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Patrick Kale, infectious disease expert with Hartford HealthCare, talking about COVID, the flu, and RSV on 14WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.